Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Hi, everyone. My name is Xinyi Willowei. I'm the Communications Coordinator at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. It's my pleasure to welcome everyone tonight for an important and very meaningful conversation. 50 years ago, in 1971, the American ping pong team made a historic visit to China. A year later, in 1972, the National Committee organized a visit of the Chinese ping pong team as it traveled across the US. These exchanges became known as ping pong diplomacy, which you will hear more about from our moderator and panelists. The anniversary of these world-changing events inspired the staff here at the National Committee to take a broader look at the past, present, and future of people-to-people exchange. As such, tonight's program will kick off a series of discussions on arts, professional, educational, and sports exchanges. For tonight's program, we'll start with a moderated panel discussion on ping pong diplomacy, how it came to be, its historical and political context and its significance then and now. At around 4.55, we'll turn a Q&A from the audience. Audience members can submit questions for our three speakers anytime by using the Q&A icon located at the bottom of your screen. Please be sure to leave your name and affiliation if possible. Without further ado, please allow me to introduce tonight's moderator, Alex DeAngelis. Alex began working on U.S.-China scientific cooperation in 1973 as a staff member at the Committee on Scholarly Communication with the People's Republic of China. Then he moved to the National Science Foundation and set up the NSF China program. He will introduce our three speakers. So with that, I will turn it over to you, Alex. Thank you so much. Um, First, I'd like to thank the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations for hosting this and for inviting me. Um, and uh, uh, also want to thank the viewers uh, out there. Uh, perhaps I shouldn't say viewers, the, the uh, well, I don't know quite how to say, the webinar participants who are not on screen. <laughs> um, so we are here today to celebrate uh, 50 years of ping, the ping pong diplomacy. Um, we're going to look at the, the past and then we're going to look again, uh, look at the uh, present and the future and try to uh, get some discussion going and finally have some questions. Uh, we are very fortunate today to have a panel consisting of uh, three uh, people who actually participated in the events of the ping pong diplomacy. Um, we have uh, Judy Horfrost, who uh, was a member of the ping pong team that went uh, to China. At the, she was at the young age of 15 at that time, had to ask her, her parents for permission to, to whether she should go or not. Um, we also have uh, Doug Spellman, who um, is a former uh, diplomat and foreign service officer, has worked closely with Dr. Kissinger, and who acted as an interpreter uh, uh, for the Chinese team that came to the United States in 1972. And 
Then we have Jan Barris. Now, Jan joined the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations in 1971 and specifically joined it uh, to be involved with the uh, visit of the, of the Chinese ping pong team in return for the U.S. team visiting China. Uh, she stayed on and has been with the committee for over four decades, and she currently serves as its vice president. So those are very brief introductions. We could say a lot more about each one of them, but time is short. Um, what is ping pong diplomacy? Uh, ping pong diplomacy refers to a series of uh, events that occurred in April 1971, uh, started at that time in Nagoya uh, in Japan at the 31st World Table Tennis Championships, where both a Chinese team and a US team participated. As the story goes, I, I hear um, one of the US members uh, kind of jumped on the bus of the Chinese delegation and uh, was warmly greeted by uh, Zhuang Zedong, who um, uh, someone described as uh, the uh, Muhammad Ali of ping pong players. Um, uh, that uh, impressed the Chairman Mao apparently and an, an invitation was issued to this group uh, of ping pong players to visit China. Now, to keep in mind, this was the first US group to visit, uh, uh, to be invited to visit China in over 22 years, 22 years of uh, propaganda and uh, coldness, uh, a, a war in Korea, uh, you know, lots of, uh, lots of very uh, dire things, but the time was ripe for this to happen. And so the group went to China. Uh, after that, um, Dr. Kissinger went to China in uh, August 71. Uh, and uh, that was the secret trip. Then he and President Nixon went in, um, in, in February 72, and the Chinese team came and visited the United States uh, in, uh, I believe in April, April 12th to 30th, 1972. That's all I'm gonna say about the, the ping pong diplomacy, but it actually is an event that changed all of our lives. Everyone listening to this, everyone on the, uh, that you can see on the screen, everyone listening and everyone out there in the United States, their lives have been changed whether they know it or not by ping pong diplomacy. I'm first gonna ask our panelists if they would please give us a, um, uh, one of their best memories uh, of the events. And I'm gonna start, I think properly with uh, Judy uh, Horfrost who was actually a member of the ping pong team. So Judy, if you'd care to uh, say a few words, we'd be very pleased. Um, thank you, Alex. And uh, first, I'd like to thank the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, which uh, for having me here today, but also for being involved way back as, as far as 1971 when we went to China. They were instrumental in, in allowing us to invite the Chinese to go to, uh, to uh, USA in, in the following year. So, but as far as a memory, it's, it's really hard for me to pick one. I was 15 years old when we were invited to go to China and uh, you know, we got the invitation and then we were on our way to China two days later. Um, I'll quickly say a, a few of the memories uh, that we had over eight days of a red carpet tour and, and red carpet treatment in, in China. But uh, the first was walking over the border into China. 
um, over the bridge, uh, listening to this militaristic, loud, rousing music, uh, which later I learned was the East, the East is Red. And uh, I ended up learning the, the lyrics to that song. And then 25 years later, I sang it at our at a uh, 25th anniversary trip to China uh, when we did karaoke, which surprised all the Chinese <laughs> in, at that time. Um, we, we visited the Great Wall, which uh, I naively, um, and I wasn't the only one on our team. I thought you could just walk up to it and uh, it was a wall, but no, you can walk on it, who knew? And uh, we went to Tiananmen Square in the Forbidden City, went to the Summer Palace, we visited a commune, we, uh, we were hosted by uh, Mao's wife uh, for a very uh, political uh, ballet called the uh, Red Detachment of Women. We, um, we, uh, we had endless banquets. We, um, we had three matches in Beijing, uh, Shanghai, and uh, Guangzhou. Uh, I played four matches when I was in China, and I won three of them. These were, these were players who were vastly superior in, to me in, in their level of play, but uh, you know what they called it then was friendship first, competition second. And that was what we experienced over and over again while we were in China was was very um, warm hospitality and and just um, amazing experiences. And I, I got a lot of uh, chances to talk to um, not the players so much because they didn't speak English, but to our um, our interpreters and our guides on the bus where we had I learned so much about the political system and what some of the things they were going through and why. Um, their version of it, and it was uh, it was quite an eye-opening experience for me. Everything about China was completely different from my small town home life in, in Eugene, Oregon. But if I asked to what's the most significant experience, I, I mean, I, honestly, it has to be um, going to the uh, the to visit uh, Premier Chou Enlai at the Great Hall of the People, um, and just the experience of you know looking at Chou Enlai face-to-face. -face. He looked straight into my eyes. We shook hands. Um, that photo was sent out by Associated Press around the world, which I didn't know until we left China eight days later. But, uh, and we all sat down with him. And, um, you know, this was an opportunity for, you know, so just some chit chat between our president of the association and, and Cho Enlai through, through the interpreter, Nancy Tang. And, um, and one thing that happened during this conversation was Graham Steenhoven, our president, um, asked uh, Cho and Lai if uh, the Chinese team could would care to come to the United States for a reciprocal visit. And he had the backing because of the National Committee um, of US-China for US-China relations. Um, he knew that uh, he had been informed by them that they would be able to cover the financial aspect and, and logistics. So. Uh, Thank you, National Committee. Um, so the other thing that Cho and Lai said during that visit, which was on the news everywhere, was um, that our team was had opened a page in U.S.-China relations. And he, uh, what? Uh, let me let me read. He said he opened a new page in the relations of the Chinese and American people. I am confident that this beginning again of our friendship will certainly meet with the approval and support of the great majority of our two peoples. So he laid it out right there that he said right there, that's the significance of 
of our trip to China, um, I believe that. Uh, and and there you go. And then when we, well, and that's that's enough said. But that would be my most significant memory. Really was was Premier Chou Enlai. He was pretty uh, amazing. Just one quick question: Were you aware of the how significant this was uh, when the, when you got the invitation? Well, when we received the invitation, we were in, as you, as you mentioned earlier, we were in Nagoya, Japan for the World Championships, which is a two week long tournament. And the Chinese were there for the first time since the beginning of the Cultural Revolution. It had been, I think, six years since they were there. So we were amazed that they were there. I, we were all wondering how well are they going to play? You know, they were, you know, we had heard that Chuang Tung had been, you know, sweeping streets that he'd been in jail. We, I mean, we didn't know whether they could still play table tennis even. So we had no, so it was amazing that they were there. Um, and then, like I said, the last day of the tournament, we received the invitation. I was really excited, but I, you know, the, the, the inkling that I had at that time though, was there was lots of press. There, and, and the grown-ups around me were all running around. Who was going to write for Newsweek? Who was going to write for The Life? Who was going to write for New York Times? So there was a lot of, uh, of media interest. But while we were in China, it was very, um, I would say, relatively sedate. I wasn't really, I mean, later on, my family said, I saw you petting a water buffalo on national television when we were at the commune. I didn't know that when we were in China. I didn't know that was going on in the United States until we left. Um, until we left China, we left the same way we we arrived, which was we took uh, from Guangzhou. We took a train to the border. We walked across the border. We got on another train. That train on its way to Hong Kong was jam packed full of reporters and cameras and elbows in my face. And you know you couldn't turn around. Everyone's just asking questions. And one reporter wanted to buy my film, which I, which I did for $200. And then they returned it to me in a nice album. But yeah, and then, uh, and another report just stuck in my face. This is you shaking hands with Cho and Lai. It's on the cover of, AP picked up the photo. It's on the cover of all of, you know, newspapers around the world here here it is what do you think about this <laughs> so it was when we left that it yeah. started to sink in and then we had so much happening i was on the today show with barbara walters i was wow. asked to do so many appearances and so many shows and 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 here That's we are 50 years later what Still a time. what a wonderful what a wonderful experience what a wonderful yeah. experience really um let's turn to doug uh for his uh uh, memory of uh, his participation and uh, sort of, uh, you know, specific memory uh, uh, that uh, sort of captures what was going on at the time. Uh, <clears throat> well, thanks, Alex. And thanks to everyone who helped arrange uh, this session today. Uh, I, I choose two, I'll make them short so they won't uh, go on too long, but I think two events sort of capitalized or crystallized the, the trip. Ping pong diplomacy, as you have said, Alex, was a kind of hybrid phenomenon. It had political aspects and it had people to people, popular aspects. So I'd quote two things. Uh, I was on the, the latter trip, not the trip to China, but for the trip to the US, I think um, meeting with President Nixon in the Rose Garden was very significant because this made clear that uh, these ping pong players were bearing a heavy political message as well. Uh, so I think that was very significant. I just have to add, I'm sorry, 
I understand that Nixon had to be reminded that the American ping pong players were there uh, and uh, to say hello to them, uh, which is a little unfortunate. But, but the other one I think is um, the way that the Chinese ping pong team was uh, welcomed in the United States. Uh, as you laid out, there have been many years of acrimony and uh, uh, confrontation between the two countries. But I was struck by people were very, quite friendly. Uh, this was perhaps shown most clearly in the big crowds that the uh, exhibition matches uh, turned out in at least four places over the US. Um, and a number of people on the street who were quoted in newspapers that covered these events about how glad they were the Chinese were here, that hopefully this would bring peace between our people, etc. So I think those two sides uh, encapsulate what uh, the meaning and the significance uh, of, of the trip. Thank you, thank you. Uh, Jan, how about uh, something that uh, you remember from that time that uh, sticks out as uh, indicative of what was going on? Well, between Judy and Doug, they've both taken the two of the things that I was going to say, <laughs> but just pick up on them. Um, because mine wasn't one memory, mine was sort of a series of memories suffused with <clears throat> what Doug has just said in terms of the warmth and friendliness and what Judy said about Yoede beside the R, uh, friendship first, competition second. That was the watchword of the trip. Um, you couldn't go anywhere without hearing it being said. And so Judy, who speaks no Chinese, learned that immediately. The journalists who were traveling with us and we talked a little bit about the media that were just filling the seats and the whole uh, train when Judy got on it. Well, when the Chinese arrived here, we had a whole plane full of journalists. There were two planes that took the teams around. One was for the American and Chinese players and the interpreters and the staff. The other plane was for the journalists. So there was a huge amount of press interest, not just American, but we had overseas press as well. So if the journalists learned this, even our State Department security officers learned that phrase, Yoidi beside Yar. And it was manifested actually on both sides. On the Chinese side, um, Judy's just told you that the Chinese allowed some of the American players to win when they were in China. Well, when they were in the United States, we could sort of see a pattern evolving. The, the first stop was Detroit, Michigan. And if people are curious about that, and if we have time, I can go into that later. But during the first match, and I'm glad Judy said it first, so I don't mean to be disrespectful, but there's, there's no question that the Chinese were the superior players. They could have won every single match throughout the entire three and a half weeks of exhibitions and tournaments that we played. But a curious pattern began to develop. In Detroit, the two players who won their matches were Connie and Del Suarez. Connie and Del Suarez are from Grand Rapids, Michigan, about a two hour drive from Detroit. When we were in Washington, it was the players who lived in or near Washington who miraculously won their game. So the Chinese were very strategic in this OED beside the R um, was used sort of cleverly and, and politically. But on the American side, as Doug has said, there was this huge amount of warmth and openness. You have to remember, as I think Alex, you started out by setting the stage by saying this was a time that Americans had been predisposed and Chinese as well to hate the other side. The other side was the devil incarnate. 
So I was amazed by how quickly, I mean, Judy found great warmth and hospitality when the team went to China and it was true on the American side. So invariably, I mean, we were just, as I said, journalists all over the place, whether it was a journalist or whether it was an American uh, who happened to be at a match or just running into the team at Disneyland or whatever, invariably a question that all the players got asked was, the um, Chinese players, what has surprised you most about being in the United States? And invariably the answer was the hospitality and the warmth and the friendship of the American people. And when I first, the first two or three times I overheard Chinese giving that answer, I thought, oh, cynical me. I thought they've been coached. They've been told to say that because that sounds good and it's, it's diplomatic. But as the trip wore on, and not just in big cities like Detroit, but we got out to a few rural areas, I myself would have given the same answer. What surprised me most was how warm and hospitable and how curious the Americans were about the team and about China. And it was very heartwarming to see that. Just in one final thing, Doug, you mentioned the matches uh, and the huge crowds. That was part of the planning of the committee uh, both for the ping pong trip and our subsequent athletic events and our performing arts events. We purposely set the tickets at a very low rate. I mean, tickets to get into the matches were like three or $4, maybe $10, the, the, you know, the front row seats. Because we wanted people in all walks of life, as the Chinese like to say, we wanted ordinary, regular Americans and people who like athletics and people who are interested in foreign policy to all be able to have the opportunity to be exposed to the group. And we, on purpose, um, in times when they weren't practicing or playing games, we arranged a whole program that took them into communities that they never would have otherwise gotten to see or visit. Let me say just one thing, Alex, if I could. Sure. Uh, while I fully agree with Jan, it's obvious uh, in what I said, uh, there were a few, a few protests. Uh, uh, outside some of the uh, games, there were people uh, protesting. And uh, this uh, Reverend McCormick, what's his name? Uh, yeah, McIntyre. Yeah, McIntyre. Uh, he was uh, very uh, upset about the whole thing. Uh, so there were a few uh, discordant notes. But the overall picture was exactly as Jan has uh, painted. Yes. And if there's time later on, I would love to talk about some of those discordant moments because they provided a lot of interesting background. Mm -hmm. I, can, uh, I can corroborate what both Jan and Doug have said about the welcome that the American people gave to the Chinese because when I took my first Chinese uh, scientific delegation around the United States, um, the, the, everywhere we went, uh, everyone was just so happy to see them and would come up and, and say, are you boys from China? And <laughs> they'd often get it wrong and say the wrong China, but they, their, their, their thoughts were, were uh, you know, friendly. And uh, I was very impressed. I was very proud as an American uh, that, uh, that the American people welcomed them uh, with, with, with that kind of feeling of uh, uh, you know, heartfelt welcome. Um, and you were and in some I just, pretty small back out of the way I places, was, right? Oh, I was in places. I was in uh, Vicksburg, Mississippi, uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, 
the Big Yazoo and Little Tallahatchie River basins <laughs> uh, down in Alabama, Florence, Alabama. Uh, I, was, I was in really uh, the South and the West uh, because that's where the waterworks were, were, were to be seen that they were looking at. And so that was even more impressive, I thought, that uh, people there uh, who tend to be conservative were very, very welcoming uh, to the group. Yes, there were some times when someone would put up a, a little Taiwanese flag or something and, and the delegation would have to complain about it and we would have to find out what the origin of that, that, you know, that was and so on. But that was uh, very minimal, very minimal. Um, so we've talked a little bit already about the American public's reaction to, uh, to the ping pong diplomacy. Um, what was the political context in which this ping pong diplomacy uh, took place? Uh, it's, it's a historical significance. And I think I'll ask Doug to uh, give that a, uh, a go. Well, okay. Um, well, this was a huge event. It was a really seismic shift in the global political situation. Uh, uh, as you said, um, uh, relations between the US and China were virtually non-existent for the first 20 years. Uh, and so um, uh, there was plenty of space for something to change. I see it as having two parts. One is obviously a vast improvement, uh, slow and gradual, but eventually quite significant between the United States and China. But the other one that's most significant is the change in the relationship because of that warming between the US and China, between the US, China, and the Soviet Union. So there were two parts really to the political uh, 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 structure of this uh, ping pong diplomacy. And I like the way you phrased it. It was really two trips by the ping pong players both ways and Kissinger and Nixon's trips to China. A whole, that, that's the ping pong diplomacy. Well, the way it came about uh, was that uh, by the late 60s, even though China and the US were uh, on unfriendly terms, both sides uh, had the idea of improving relations with the other. Uh, President Nixon was elected in 1968. Uh, even before his election, he had said, it would be very important for the United States to develop relations with China. It, it was unthinkable not to have relations with this huge and uh, important country. So he was already sort of set for it. Um, his national security advisor, Henry Kissinger, uh, agreed on that front. And then there were a number of, of feelers that Nixon and actions that Nixon took to show the US government uh, uh, attitude. Uh, travel restrictions in 1969 and 70 were loosened. Trade restrictions were loosened. The Seventh Fleet stopped patrolling in the Taiwan Strait. That, as you all know, was how we got into that, the Chinese Civil War in 1950 when the Korean War started. We sent our fleet into the Taiwan Strait. China, on the other hand, was also looking for opportunities to warm relations with the United States because of their fear of the Soviets. Uh, in 1968, the Soviet Union had invaded uh, Czechoslovakia, if you'll remember. China thought, hmm, if they can go that way, maybe they'd come our way and that wouldn't be so good. Um, 
And then there were direct clashes between the Soviets and the Chinese along the Usuri River in 1969, uh, where a number of soldiers from both sides uh, were killed. Uh, so, and the last uh, thing before ping pong happened was Mao Zedong invited Edgar Snow to Beijing uh, and sat for an interview with Edgar Snow and said how he might be happy to have President Nixon come to China. Well, this was what is known as a, a wide open blatant signal uh, that China was ready to improve relations. So it was after that, that the ping pong invitation from Joe and Lai came to the ping pong team. And that was sort of the final sign that we had shown that we were ready for a warming. And this was China showing that it was ready for the warming. And that then led to the Kissinger trip, the Nixon trip, the return ping pong trip, and the whole uh, uh, process was, was, was set in motion. I mentioned there were two sides to it. The other part was the change that this brought about in both China and US's relations with the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union came off in this realignment in bad shape because now it was the only one of the three that could theoretically face a two front war against China and the United States before we had been in that position, certainly in the 50s when the Sino-Soviet bonds were strong. So the Soviet Union uh, really uh, lost, if you will, uh, as a result of Sino-American warming. Um, what happened was that both China and, the U and, uh, and ourselves, our relations with the Soviets were strengthened in a way. In other words, this is where it takes a little funny turn. What Kissinger wanted to use this warming with China for was to improve relations with the Soviet Union. He wanted to promote detente with the Soviet Union and having China at his side strengthened his hand. So it didn't necessarily mean that it worsened relations with the Soviet Union, but it changed them um, quite significantly. So as I say, I think this is the, the political significance. Ping pong, again, was the way, the final expression of uh, 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 China's interest, drawing on interest that we had expressed. Uh, uh, and that set the whole thing. So ping pong played a central role in a political uh, change, which was unimaginable. So there you are. Would you would you say that um, that one side was more active in pr pr pursuing this than the other, or were we equally sort of looking for a reason to get together? My reading of uh, the ones that I've looked at uh, accounts of this is it was pretty even on both sides. Uh, it just happened that uh, at the end of the 60s, uh, uh, both sides, for the reasons that I've laid out, uh, were extremely interested in warming relations with the other. And uh, that was very fortuitous because obviously if there was only one side that was pursuing it more strongly, it would have been more difficult to do. So the fact that both sides were uh, cooperating, I think was a fortuitous uh, development and very advantageous to, to us and to China. 
I think that's an important point to remember as we get into further discussion about uh, what might occur in the future. Um, Jan and uh, Judy, do you uh, would you like to say anything um, with regard to this uh, uh, this subject that Doug uh, just uh, so nicely explained? Well, I would just add, Doug, you I, you I thought you laid that out beautifully and very clearly for those for those in the audience who don't have the white hair that you Alex and I have. I don't uh, have very much hair. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, I'm reminded in that whole scenario, um, the visit, the Chinese invitation to the ping pong team. I think while it, the Chinese have been thinking about it for a while, I think it came as a surprise to the American side, at least Dr. Kissinger, the way he recollects and the way he tells the story. We had a 25th anniversary. So Judy did two anniversary celebrations um, in the, the 1997. Um, she went to China uh, and she came to New York for an event that we had that brought together a lot of the people who had been involved, the players, the officials, some of the reporters, some of the security people, Tricia Nixon, who had been at one of the matches. And Dr. Kissinger gave a speech. And at the speech, he said, you know, I wanna tell you that I was plenty worried about all this. When I heard that the Chinese had invited a bunch of American ping pong players, I thought, Oh my God, what's gonna happen? He had been laying all of these secret, very delicate back and forth, back channel negotiations, getting Pakistan, getting the help. And he said he held his breath the entire seven or eight days they were in China um, because he was worried something would go wrong. Somebody would say the wrong thing and it would upset the apple cart of all of their very carefully uh, laid secret plans. Um, but he, he was sort of, he joked about it in the, in that 25th anniversary, but he just did a tape for another program that I was on, uh, on the Chinese side celebrating this anniversary. And he talks about it now as saying he really has a very warm spot in his heart for what went on during ping pong. And, ping -pong that, players. <laughs> for, and for the ping pong players. And he, thought, he said, in retrospect, they saw this as the Chinese signal back to Kissinger and Nixon that they were willing to accept the overtures that we had made. And so he actually was very pleased that this had happened because that then gave them the wherewithal to move forward in their plans, which then eventuated in his trip in, it was actually July of, of um, 71, and then the Nixon trip in 72. And, April. I'm sorry, February. 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 Right. Ping Pong was April. Nixon was February. Just just a short aside about the secretness and the and you know how how well guarded this was and you know no one knew that uh, that Kissinger had you know gone to China. It was a big secret. And uh, what's so interesting to me is that I've lived long enough to see all of those documents released. Uh, those were top secret eyes only documents and now anybody who's got a computer and an internet connection can see what one said exactly what one said to, each one said to the other I think it's quite amazing Alex uh, I should have I should have I meant to say uh, in addition to these various uh, it, it bears on the question you asked and were both sides serious there were talks going on 
in two places. One in Warsaw between the ambassador, uh, US and Chinese ambassador, and in Pakistan, through the Pakistanis. And so both sides were quite uh, clear that the other side was interested. Uh, and that's why it proceeded actually rather smoothly once uh, the, the invitations were issued. Except weren't the war talks, Warsaw talks stalled, Doug? I thought they weren't going anywhere. And that's they, why they were up and down. They, they had been started uh, long before, you're right. Uh, and then uh, in the, uh, it, it, I can't, I don't know the exact uh, development of them, but they sort of stalled, but then I think they came back. And I think at the end, uh, Walter Stessel, who was our ambassador in uh, Warsaw, uh, had made contact with the Chinese ambassador. And I think it was right close to the time of, of Ping Pong. Uh, I'm not sure of that, but anyway, that was a channel. Uh, how active at a moment, exactly that moment, I'm not sure. Let's, uh, let's go on. Uh, let's remember that we have some limited time. So uh, try to make your comments uh, succinct. Um, but I think what, you, what everyone said so far has been so fascinating. I could just uh, go on listening to it, but let's, let's remember that. Uh, we have other things to get to. Well, let me, before we go on to the, uh, the next sort of issues of the present and the future, was ping pong diplomacy a success? I think, we, I think we know the answer, but what would you say about it being a success or not? And if not, why? Um, maybe Jan, I'll ask you first. I would say it was a huge success for one key reason is that it humanized all of us to the other side. I think that was certainly Judy and her colleagues felt that when they went to China. And we certainly felt it when they came over here. We all did our best, as I mentioned before, we wanted to introduce the Chinese to a number of segments of American life and society uh, to show them that we as Americans were human. And it also had the benefit of showing the Americans that the Chinese were humans as well. And that then enabled us uh, both at the National Committee and Alex, where you worked at the Committee on Scholarly Communications with the People's Republic of China to build a series of exchanges that just gradually over the years brought more and more Americans and Chinese into contact with one another and made us all realize that at heart, we're all human beings. I could add to that, Alex. Uh, it seems to me that choosing ping pong players was, was a stroke of genius in many ways. Uh, they were obviously excellent ping pong players, but they weren't threatening. They weren't threatening like uh, hmm. perhaps uh, uh, high-powered politicians might have been or, or other figures. So whether that was... Now, of course, the other reason that they invited a ping pong team was because the Chinese were world champions in ping pong, of course. So they sort of played to their strength, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think it's significant and important and a success uh, in addition to the things that Jan said on the other side, on the political side. It really opened up a whole new world. It changed the global political uh, uh, situation. It was a, uh, and um, so I, I don't see how it can be seen as anything but a success. Did US-China relations go smoothly after that? Of course not. Uh, there have been a lot of dips and bumps, uh, but there have been relations. Compare them to the 50s and 60s when there was nothing. Uh, and ping pong diplomacy made that change. Yeah, well, if I could, if I could jump in here too. I yes, mean, please. It was not 
I mean, from the American side, as Jan said, it was a complete surprise that, you know, a ping pong team was invited to China. I mean, that was just what's going on here, as, as Kissinger said, well, oh no, um, what's, what's gonna happen here? These, this crazy mix of people, who knows what's gonna happen? But, uh, but from the Chinese perspective, I mean, as, as Doug said, uh, or Alex, I think it was Doug said, um, it, was, it is the national sport in China. It was and, and currently is. In fact, uh, you know, during the long march, they played table tennis in caves. You know that, you know, uh, Cho and Lai. I mean, every when he has a visitor over, he play. He would play ping pong. Ping pong. They call it ping pong. Now, in those days, we weren't calling it ping pong because ping pong was just a parlor game. Table tennis was a sport. But since the Chinese call it ping pong, now it's okay for all of us. We all call it ping pong. But there was a. There's always been a very large mix of politics with um, with ping pong in China, and um, you know, like I said earlier, I don't know if I said it earlier, maybe in an earlier discussion, Chuang Tsutong was friends with uh, Chairman Mao's wife. All of the players would go and have meetings with Cho and Lai regularly, um, uh, and Chairman Mao too. They were always in communication with the players, and um, and the players would were. Uh, some of them became very important, um, you know, mem members of the National Congress and and in politics. So it it was always. But but the question about is is ping pong diplomacy a success? From a table tennis perspective, I would say very much so. Mm -hmm. I mean, after the '70s, the Chinese have continued their their world domination of or I would say influence, they have sent players all over the world. There are now players in, uh, Chinese players in every country of the world who are, who are uh, you know, um, coaching. And, and in, this, in this, in USA, we had zero Chinese coaches uh, from the People's Republic in, in the seven, you know, 1971. But now we probably have over a hundred that are high level um, table tennis coaches in, in different, in fact, in, I have in my company, Paddle Palace Table Tennis, we also have a club and we have a full-time Chinese coach. Um, it's, and they're- it's a cultural, cultural export. It is totally a, their cultural export. And, um, and, you know, and then from a political side, as you, as you said, you know, we opened relations. We couldn't talk in 1971. As my 15 year old self said then, we couldn't talk to each other in 1971. Now we now we can. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So the people to people part of it was really very, very important. Yeah. Uh, sort of familiarizing us with them and them with us as people, not as this mass of, you know, uh, what we would regard at the time as the, the red peril or the, the yellow horde or, you know, the various pejorative terms like that. And I'm sure they had, uh, uh, you know, they had, I've been in China where uh, where signs above us said, you know, uh, 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 beat down the running dogs of American imperialism. And there we were being welcomed <laughs> underneath these signs. Um, so this, those are strange times. Um, well, given that the, let's, let's go on now to uh, a little bit uh, about the current and uh, maybe future of ping pong diplomacy. And given that, uh, the 50th, 50th anniversary has brought it all back to us. What ping pong diplomacy, 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 excuse me, achieved? Um, how might reflecting on this moment um, uh, alter the way people are currently thinking about U.S.-China sports? Um, 
is anyone, would anyone like to, to tackle that one? Jan, do you well, have a feeling about a, that? Um, I think sports between China and the United States has changed enormously, um, as has many of the early exchanges that took place, whether the national command, some on this call may not know that from 72 when the ping pong team came until 79 when we normalized relations with China, there were really only two organizations that were um, managing and running exchanges between the two countries. One was the Committee on Scholar Communications that Alex worked at, which did the um, academic and scientific and medical kinds of exchanges. And the other was the National Committee. And we started out doing these very big public high profile events like athletics, acrobats, performing arts companies, we were involved in the both the Philadelphia Orchestra's trip to China, <coughs> excuse me, as well as the Boston Symphony. And so these were all big, high-profile things, which continued helping Americans understand um, Chinese. But they were all done on a people-to-people -people basis. We got funding from foundations and from the US government at the time. First, the, the National Committee used to be um, very holier than thou and didn't, we were founded by some academics who didn't want to take money from the US government in the mid-60s and 70s. Um, and so we took very little, but we did get some funding from the government to carry on these exchanges. But we weren't, we, I'm sure the Chinese all assumed that both CSC and the committee were government entities, but we weren't and we made this as people oriented as we could. But they were not done for monetary reasons. As I said, we kept our ticket prices very low and we depended on subsidies and on corporate contributions and private contributions. That's not the case anymore. Sports exchanges now between China and the rest of the world, between the United States and the rest of the world are um, mostly done for monetary reasons. Um, but I should say, I, I, I wanna, um, color that a little bit. Um, some of those monetary reasons are, are long run and in the future, because at the moment, places like the NBA, the National Hockey League, the Major League, Major League Baseball, all have programs within China mm. uh, that are helping to um, encourage and teach young Chinese how to play some of these sports, hockey, not one necessarily new football, American style football, not a sport that the Chinese were very involved in. So there are athletic camps, both in China and elsewhere run by the major hockey, baseball, basketball and football leagues that eventually will, they hope, I think, make these sports very popular in China. And eventually it is a monetary kind of outcome that they're looking for. But in the meantime, there is still some of that old fashioned people to people work because you've got young Americans and some middle-aged Americans in China teaching all these sports and getting involved and in bringing people over here for athletic camps. So um, while the eventual goal for this is a monetary one, um, there's still some people to people aspects of it that are current. 
Dan, if, if I can ask, how have all of these activities been influenced by the rather poor political uh, relations between ourselves and China now? Has it diminished them or have they continued no, pretty well? They are, they're going on, they're continuing. Yeah. We, we have a friend, a young man who was actually a loose scholar who went to China and he had been a football player at the University of Michigan, fell in love with China, he stayed there. And he on his own started these camps to train young mm. Chinese how mm. to play American style football. Mm. And he's still there and, and running his programs and his camps. And I just heard recently about, uh, well, we, we had a program this summer where uh, Ray Chang, I think, I hope I'm getting his name right, is a major league baseball um, person who is working on developing um, baseball players within China. So even despite the downturn in the relationship, those things, and it, it's what I keep saying about the relationship between China and the United States. You know, if the two, if the two governments want to put sanctions on each other and yell at each other and find fault with each other constantly, let them go do it. But let them step back, like both of them did in the 70s. Doug, you mentioned that the United States and China both began taking actions, which set the stage for the growth of people-to-people -people exchanges. Yeah. And yeah. I wish we could get back to that, where both governments would step back and just let people like us keep going and engaging with one another. Well, it, so it sounds like there is quite a bit of that. I mean, put together with what you said about Americans being in China, with what Judy said about Chinese coaches on ping pong being here. That's very encouraging. And Judy, have you seen uh, any problems from the current rather uh, difficult political relations between the China on these ping pong coaches who are in the U.S.? Um, I, I can speak from personal experience with our coach here in USA. We want, we want him to be here long, long term, and he applied for per permanent residency, and he's been denied. And I, I would, I, I wish there was something I could do about that because we're going to lo probably lose our coach. And he has his wife and child here, and has a home here, and um, is probably going to have to leave. Do do you know if if his denial was in any way connected with the current political situation, or were there other factors that that led to that? As far as you know, or it's it's hard to know sometimes. At all. It, in this case, it, it's really hard to know because they're Absolutely. not going to say denied because you know of our politics. They're yeah, not going to. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, um, That's a shame, Judy. That's very sad. Yeah, that is. Well, this kind of this uh, this harkens back to something we we talked about earlier, which was that back in the days of the ping pong diplomacy, there was a will, a willingness on both sides uh, in the government to 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 make this break, and it's hard to find that same willingness today so you know the question is can you have a another kind of ping pong diplomacy maybe a, a hockey diplomacy or or some other sports diplomacy and and also sports in and of itself is uh is a kind of a double-edged uh double-edged sword in the sense that but for the same you know the, it's there's a article by louisa thomas that came out in the, the new yorker not not terribly long ago it, that the it's a mistake to believe that the, the social influence of sports is always for good. Uh, it isn't any more than 
free markets are always promote uh, freedom. Um, and, and the same sort of uh, thing is uh, true that the unifying power of sports is, uh, uh, makes them appealing tool, an appealing tool for, for authoritarian governments. So it can, it, can be, it can go both ways when we're talking about, about sports per, uh, per se. Um, we've gotten a number of questions and I think maybe we can, we can um, uh, go on to those. Um, one of the questions that has been asked is, um, uh, hold on just a second. And, okay, so ping pong diplomacy in 1971 was at one end of a long arc of US-China relations and we are now seemingly at the other end of that arc with uh, deteriorated, deteriorated relations. Uh, between the two countries and sports symbolic uh, once again in the form of upcoming Beijing Winter Olympics and discussion of a boycott uh, by the U.S. Today, can people-to-people -people diplomacy play a, a humanizing role again? Or could there be some other kind of eye-catching symbol to start to rebuild trust or remind both sides of our commonality? Would anyone like to... Uh, to take well, that, I'll, Doug? I'll jump in. There could be, but it appears that it's going to be rather difficult now. Uh, the, the main difficulty between our two sides now is uh, our uh, abhorrence at some of their human rights practices. And uh, the, the concern with human rights has gone up and down uh, in our relationship between uh, normalization in 79 and the current time. So who knows how it's going to go? I mean, recall, for instance, that President Clinton, you know, thought that uh, human rights should not preclude agreeing to most favored nation for trade. In other words, he put prominence on trade over human rights. That could perhaps change somewhat. I, I don't see any very realistic prospect of China's uh, current practices domestically that we are concerned about changing. Uh, so from that perspective, I tend to be rather pessimistic about uh, the general atmosphere improving and therefore giving more room for some sort of positive people-to-people -people relations. That's a pretty negative view, but... Uh, well. Maybe others would want to modify it. Well, I can that just question by the oh yes, Judy, please. I was just going to jump in and say that um, you know sports and and the, the people people exchanges are pretty much at the at the grassroots level, and I see in our nation right now that we have a lot of division. It's not just between ourselves and China or uh, other countries. It's right even here, right in our country, we have so much division right now where people are not open-minded to listen to what other people are thinking and feeling and, and being open to uh, communicate in a real way about how to, to solve problems together. Rather, it's one tribe against another. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can, we have that inside our own country as well as between countries. And, and my, uh, my personal view is that, you know, the Olympics is, is one example is something that players work four years to, to train and to go to play and, and, you know, and to compete. And it's a huge personal experience for them, which, uh, which is one point. But the other point is 
it's a it's a connection with the other players. It's a chance to communicate for for the players to communicate within their language of their shared sport. And and if you cut off communication, which is the problem, I think that we have now, people are not listening to the same news. They're not listening. They're not communicating on the same wavelength. We need to break down those barriers. And um, you know, and, and sports and cultural exchanges. That's that's really that, that human connection starts there. If you if you if you can communicate person to person, it rises up the chain to our politics to, you know, to make it, to make our leaders able to make those kind of changes. Because especially in our, I mean, we, in our country, you don't get elected unless you're doing what the people want. So we need to, we, we need to, um, we need to, you know, we need as people to open our minds and, and to share and communicate. And, and, and that's why I'm, I'm optimistic. I guess I have to be optimistic. Mm -hmm. I'm somewhere in the middle because like Judy, I, I, I share that optimism and I share the fact of when you look at relations at the Beijing to Washington level, they're pretty awful. But when you get down to the subnational level and we've, the National Committee has always done a lot of work at the subnational level and we continue to do so. Mm. And we still see, despite the problems at the top and granted it's not all it's not all roses and daffodils at the lower level, but there is an interest in continuing to have the engagement that Judy is talking about and not, and I think that that just stems from people innately wanting to connect with others, especially among people in the same professions, whether it's sports or agriculture or whatever, there is a desire to share and to learn. So I think we need to keep that in our minds and keep plugging away at it because it's all cyclical. You know, we've had ups and downs in this relationship for the past 50 years. And it, so hopefully, I, I agree with Doug that at the moment things are bad, but we're hopeful that things are going to take a better turn. I have a question here directly to Jan. It comes from Xiaohuang uh, Yin of Occidental College. He says, Jan, my friends and colleagues and I are disappointed that the Biden administration in many ways has continued the confrontation policy adopted by the previous administration toward China. Do you think there is any real chance for the US-China relationship returning to quote unquote normal in the next three years? Well, thank you, Xiaohuang, for that um, question. Um, I have to say that I and my colleagues at the committee I think we share your disappointment that we haven't yet seen some of the changes we had hoped would be a priority for the Biden administration vis-a-vis -vis China. Just some of the first things that come to mind is reinstatement of the Fulbright program, reinstatement of the Peace Corps program, or beginning to chip away at what we understand is a huge backlog of student visa applications. Um, we've heard from the administration that things are moving in the right direction, at least right as we define it, which would be reinstating those kinds of things, getting to the visas, um, and that we just have to be patient. And in fact, last night or early this morning, uh, heard the news that, the, the wonderful news, that actually student visas are once again going to be reissued. Now, the problem is I think a lot of consulates are still closed. Certainly the consulates and the embassy in Beijing is closed, uh, but I'm very hopeful 
that um, that will begin to change. And so right now, it's the people who already have visas, but Doug, you would know this better than I. I, I thought all visas had been canceled. So everybody's gonna have to wait a while because as I said, there is this huge backlog, but at least we're moving in the right direction now. And also that I think it's clear there's been some behind the scenes discussion and working things out because the Chinese have recently announced that they would accept non-Chinese vaccines as proof of vaccine status. And I'm hopeful that we're doing the same vis-a-vis -vis China. So it hasn't come as quickly as we would like, but I think we are on an upward trajectory. Uh, we had someone die, oh, excuse me, Doug, did you have something you wanted to say? No, no I, I, I should know in more detail of this because, uh, well, uh, my daughter works on these kind of uh, educational exchanges, but I, I don't know. I, I think I agree basically with Janet that we're, it's looking better, but still there's a long ways to go to open this up, not just with China, but worldwide for student visas. We have had uh, a question from someone who dialed in all the way from Beijing. So we want to give that person a chance to have this question answered. It's from Mevkat Katik of Taiha Global. Um, as US President Biden is known to be a fan of ice hockey and China's President Xi Jinping is fond of sports, I was wondering if ice hockey diplomacy could replicate ping pong diplomacy. Could both presidents jointly kick off an ice hockey match between the national teams from both sides? Will the puck be heard around the world in the 21st century? Um. Well, I was, ice hockey is not necessarily a sport that you think of as bringing China, maybe, you know, people with more northern climes, but I, I know certainly in the wake or in the preparation for the upcoming Olympics, I think the Chinese have been committed to expanding participation in winter sports among uh, its citizens. So I understand that they're um, that they want to have over 300 million people participating in winter sports by the time the Olympics come along. Um, and that there are, I mentioned before, that there are national hockey leagues which are investing time and money in putting together hockey camps for Chinese, young Chinese, both in China and in North America. And that's been going on for the past couple of years. So, um, it could be possible, I suppose. It's sort of the image of President Xi and Biden facing off over on center ice over a hockey puck <laughs> is an interesting image to conjure up, but anything's possible. Right. Um, back in the days when uh, I just started out in Washington, I had an office that was in a hallway and across the hallway was the um, office that dealt with the um, Soviet Union, uh, with exchanges with the Soviet Union. And there was a, um, a, a person there who became a good friend of mine, a very well-known um, scholar on Russia and Soviet affairs. And he said to me once, and this is just an observation, he said, you know what the difference is between um, you folks who deal with China and us who deal with the Soviet Union? I said, no. He said, you folks who deal with China seem to really like what you do. <laughs> and uh, I thought that was a very interesting observation from someone who spent his whole life dealing with, with uh, questions of uh, the relationships between us and the Soviets in that time, and now with Russia uh, as well. 
Another question that has come up is uh, uh, a group of 42 young Americans visited China in 1957. This was uh, 14 years before ping pong diplomacy. They toured eight cities for six weeks. The invitation from the Chinese was opposed by the US State Department, but they were enthusiastically welcomed when they arrived in Beijing from Moscow. My question is why this visit seems to be almost completely forgotten. Uh, I must say, I, had, I knew nothing about this. Uh, does someone, any, anyone, any of you have any comment on this? Who, who asked the question? I wonder, Alice. Um, I do not have here the information on who actually asked this question. I see. Sorry. And did he say people came from Moscow? So was that, these were Americans or they were Soviets? No, they were Americans. They went, uh, they arrived in Beijing yeah. from Moscow. Yeah. Huh. Um, these are Americans, I believe. The Americans visited China in 57. Okay. I've, I don't I've, know about that trip, but there were, um, the ping pong team may have been, well, I thought it was one of the first groups um, until I just heard this question. There certainly were Americans in China before the ping pong team went. There was Edgar Snow, there was Bill Hinton, there were several uh, members of the Black Panthers. Um, lots of people were visiting prior to 71. But I had always thought that the ping pong players were the first sort of official group. Maybe this will help. I, I, I actually, I've actually discovered that this question is from Terry Louts. Yes. No, oh. I, I <laughs> actually, I spoke with Terry about this and I looked oh. it up and uh, there was an article in Look Magazine called Inside Red China, written by, there were a number of journalists. I don't know if all were journalists in this group, but they, uh, the, the, there, there is an article. I couldn't find the article, but Terry does know about this. Uh, and uh, he told me the other day, and I was surprised that there had been a group that is, uh, is never mentioned. Yes. This question is uh, more of a comment than a question, and it's from a professor emeritus at Adelphi University. Do members remember that at this time, the Chinese PLA was still assisting the North Vietnamese in shooting down American aircraft. And yet we improved relations while today, those who oppose dealing with China want to use much less serious issues to block relations. That's true. We should look to the past. Mm. We should look to the past to make the present better. Um, I always get in, criticized at the committee when I want to think about and talk about the past. So I'm really glad to yeah. ask that question. <laughs> I think and one thing that the, the yes, uh, go ahead, please. Well, the, the question of Vietnam is one that uh, intrigues me too, because I think one of Nixon's uh, uh, objectives in improving relations with China was that he hoped it might improve our chances of getting out of Vietnam with honor, of course. Uh, and as far as I can determine, that didn't really happen. Uh, in other words, the Vietnamese were negotiating in Paris at that time. They reached agreement in the, uh, 75 on uh, withdrawing, I think it was 75 or maybe even earlier. Uh, I, I, I can't help but think that their uh, enthusiasm for negotiating with us was somewhat undercut when they saw one of their main backers that was China uh, improving relations with us. So it, it might've had some impact on the settlement of the Vietnam War. The Chinese seem to have an abiding faith in the people of both countries 
being irrevocably on a path toward greater cooperation. Uh, we saw this when Yang Jiechi uh, spoke with you at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Um, uh, the future of U.S. ties. Uh, I'm sorry. And then we also saw it when uh, with Chen Zhang, who the people-to-people uh, -people diplomacy, the beginning and the end, who said the future of U.S.-China ties will be shaped by young people, and that we should keep on these people-to-people -people exchanges. Uh, it seems to me that fortune favors the prepared and that by having our people-to-people -people exchanges, we will in essence be ready for any other possibility that might come along in the future to bring us together. Would you care to comment on that? I, I think that, I mean, Jen is the one to comment on that, but it seems to me that's a very good strategy. I mean, you know, the people-to-people the, the -people lays a foundation, which sometimes can be frustrated by uh, political actors who have different ideas or, or have very strong ideas in a different direction. But it's, if it's there, it's there to be drawn upon and built upon. Uh, so I think there's, I agree with that. Jen, I defer to you, but. Uh... No, I, I would agree with that as well. I think it's just my enthusiasm and I think it's shared by all of us on this panel is that it's important to stay engaged. I mean, you need to talk to people that you like and you need to talk to people you don't like and people yeah. you agree with and people you don't. And by cutting ourselves off, we're only denying ourselves opportunities that we should be grabbing onto. Tom Gold of Berkeley, has anyone tried to replicate ping pong diplomacy with North Korea? Uh, I think the New York Phil performed in Pyongyang and the North Koreans are big on ice hockey. That was Tom Gold's question. Well, the, there is there is an organization that was begun a couple of years ago, sort of a, similar to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, which looked at North Korea and was trying to promote exchanges. Tom is right. The, there was an orchestra that went and visited, a very successful visit, uh, some art exchanges. But as far as I know, there's not a whole lot of follow-up to that. Let me let me uh, bring up one point about uh, we're talking about uh, North and South Korea. Uh, I believe it was in 1981 at the World Championships, North and South Korea combined to to oh, be a yes. united team together mm. to participate at the World Championships, which is a pretty amazing uh, uh, act of ping pong diplomacy. Well, um, if this is uh, if this is acceptable to all of you. Uh, I would like to turn this back to Willow now uh, to close up our meeting and thank you all for your participation. Willow, please take it away. No problem. Thank you so much, Alex. And a huge thank you to all of our wonderful panelists. Doug, Judy, and Jen, it has been such a delight and honor to have all of you with us this afternoon. And our excellent moderator, Alex, thank you so much, despite of that very tiny technical glitch. Um, also, thank you to my colleagues at the National Committee who worked so hard for months to make this program possible. And of course, thanks to the audience who tuned in. We hope you enjoyed the program and found it informative. As a reminder, we have three more very exciting programs to come in this People to People Exchange series. They will focus on arts and culture, professional and educational exchange, and sports. Please check out our website at ncuscr.org 
slash events for our upcoming programs and follow the US China P2P hashtag on social media to stay up to date on the series. Thanks again, everyone. I hope you all have a great rest of your evening or day. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.